Welcome to Get Your Book Seen and Sold. I am your host, Claudine Wolk. You can find me at my Substack account, claudinewolk.substack.com. We're talking all about publishing and book marketing. If you have decided that you want to write a book and you're trying to figure out how to publish it, or maybe you've already written a book and you're trying to figure out how to market it, this is the podcast slash Substack for you. Our goal is to give you great tips, by example in some cases, to help you get your book seen and sold. So join us through the newsletter or the podcast today and get your book seen and sold. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star rating. Welcome to Get Your Book Seen and Sold. I am your host, Claudine Wolk. With us today is Mariah Fredericks. She was born and raised in New York City, graduated from Vassar College with a degree in history, and she is the author of 16 books, including two series. A Death of No Importance, the first in her Jane Prescott series, was nominated for the 2018 Mary Higgins Clark Award. Her latest book, The Wharton Plot, releases this January 2024. You can find her at her website, MariahFrederick'sBooks.com, and she is our guest today. Welcome, Mariah. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So nice to have you here. I can't believe it. Okay, we're so very, very excited. So I read uh, The Lindbergh Nanny. Mm-hmm. which uh, I loved. I, I ripped through it. I absolutely loved. And I was in, you know how sometimes as a reader, you get into those funks where you're just picking things up and you're you're not reading them. You're putting them down. You can't finish them. And you saved me. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Yes, I know that funk well. Yes. Uh, so very, uh, very, very love, lovely job on the Lindbergh Nanny. So I'm wondering if you can tell our audience what made you write about it that event specifically, and why from the aspect of the nanny Betty Gowell? Well, um, it, I've always been obsessed with the Lindbergh kidnapping. Um, in 1974, my parents did a really stupid thing and took me to see Murder on the Orient Express, <laughs> which of course is, Christie was inspired by the kidnapping to write that book. And I vividly remember you know, the opening, uh, which has, you know, the kidnapping of little Daisy Armstrong. I was a child. So, you know, it ends on this headline, you know, little Daisy found Swain. You know, it was like, what? What? Yeah, it's pretty serious. <laughs> Yikes. Right. Run that by me again. Um, <laughs> and, you know, many anxious children have become fixated on the kidnapping. Maury Sendak was, Gloria Vanderbilt, famously. And I always had it in mind, but, you know, there are so many books on the kidnapping, I never thought I was going to tackle it. But when my editor said, we'd like you to write a standalone and take a break from the Jane Prescott series, um because the jane prescott series is told from it, the lady's maid is the detective because i'm really fascinated by what the people that nobody who nobody notices you know they're not important enough to pay attention to what those people are able to see and overhear um, so my first instinct was to swat uh, a servant or a domestic worker into a famous crime. 
and you know, it's thinking Titanic or <laughs> the chauffeur for the murder of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And then I remembered the Lindbergh kidnapping. And I thought, you know, did Charlie have a nanny? Because we don't really hear about her these days. And a very quick Google search revealed that yes, he had a nanny and she was the number one suspect. Uh, for a time in the kidnapping. Amazing. It really, uh, yeah. And and the way that you, and I want to give anything away, but the way that you, the story is told from her point of view, and you, you certainly as the reader, you're not 100% sure that she's reliable either, right? And, and, and there's this mystery that's unfolding, but also the interactions between her and the other staff because you really didn't focus on Lindbergh or uh, Anne, uh, his wife. No, it is very much uh, a below stairs story. Um, and uh, although Anne and Charles play their their parts, um, but yes, I wanted it. I'm, you know, I mean, I'm fascinated by the situation of living domestic staff because there is a limit on your freedom of movement and on the the boundaries that that work puts on your personal life um and that there's always this tension between who do you allow inside your home inside your family who do you allow access to um and i wrote the book during covid when of course like every interpersonal interaction was fraught um (laughs) and and we felt the threat of other people very keenly so that's why the book opens with betty driving up to the house and you get this tension immediately of like she is focused on getting inside that remote um impossible place yes Absolutely. Um, it's very readable, too. And and it's uh, I love historical fiction, but I know you did a lot of research. I read that you did a lot of research in order to write the book. And so and how much of it is, you know, true and how much of it is fiction? Because this crime is so uh, well known and still so hotly debated, I felt like it was very important if I was going to advance a theory about how the kidnapping happened and who was involved to stick to the facts as closely as possible. Um, one reason is I, you know, as a reader of historical fiction myself, I prefer it um, when people have to deal with the facts on the ground, it feels more satisfying. But I also knew I would get slaughtered by hordes of armchair scholars if I didn't get the window right or I didn't get the wood grain on the ladder right. (laughs) Um, And uh, so for that, there were two, I believe, two key elements I made up um, in the book. Um, And I discuss those in the author afterward. Yes, you do. And excuse me. 
I did. Um, I, I like to say that the best historical fiction is when the author makes you thirsty for more. And that means that you want to do some of your own research. And you mentioned there are a lot of books out there. Well, it just so happened that I, I guess as I was reading your book, my husband ended up taping a special. And it was a, a guy who looks into um, crimes, I guess, or mysteries, let's say. And he ended up in in the um residence of the Lindberghs, which is still there in New Jersey. Yeah. Oh, is this the John Douglas? That sounds right. That sounds yeah. right. And he actually did a reenactment with the latter to uh-huh. see if he could actually get it. And that, okay, that was it for me. And then he has this round table where he talks to an author who was a local author who um, also wrote a book about it. Mm-hmm. And you actually mentioned the book in your acknowledgments too. Uh, oh, Fisher. That's it. Book? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you recommend that book for people who are interested in learning more? Yes. I mean, I, I'm, I'm blanking on the title now, it, the, it, the Crime That Never Died. Yes. Yes. The, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But what he does that's hugely helpful is that he sifted through all the uh, files at the New Jersey State Police Museum, all the reports, all the interviews, all the statements, and he distills it into um, one book. Um, So it's both firsthand accounts, which is so useful, um, and it's it's comprehensive. Another terrific book is uh, Jim Fisher's book um, for just sort of a, um, a, a, a balanced account. Um, okay. No, that, that's good to know. And I'll put that, I'll put that in the show notes because it really is a fascinating story. And the one other thing that I didn't realize, and again, I don't want to give anything away, but you do talk about the media frenzy. And I think my generation, you know, we were very used to, um, you know, the Princess Diana thing, you know, where everybody was all over her and followed her and, and sadly what happened and um, with her. And this kind of had that same kind of flavor to me, the whole court case and the uh, people showing up at the farm and trying to figure out what was going on. Did that surprise you or did you already know about that? I knew that it was, um, I mean, part of the reason Agatha Christie covered it was it was extensively covered, even in England, because so, ma- so many of the staff members were English or Scottish. Um, but it was that big a deal. And, but I wasn't aware of so much the predatory nature um, of the relationship between the public and the Lindberghs. Um, You know, Charles Lindbergh, of course, is a famously difficult personality to to wrestle with, with his involvement in America First and other aspects to his character. He's very chilly. But when you see what he and Anne had to put up with, um, you know, that they were stalked on their honeymoon, um, that they were besieged whenever they went out in public. Um, there's an episode in the book where a woman arrives at the door and says, you know, I have to see the baby. That's based in fact, that really happened. Um, so they were very, very wary and protective of Charlie from the beginning. Um, 
and just sort of the physical intrusiveness of people was a shock. Um, yeah, I, very crazy. And and the whole idea that kidnapping was not such a strange thing. Like we hear that now, we're like kidnapping. Oh my gosh, how horrible. And it is horrible. But people would actually get kidnapping insurance back then because it was a popular yeah. thing to do. Awful. Yeah, no, it's um, it was, you know, crimes go in waves and trends and kidnapping, especially during the depression was... Um, was a trend um and many times uh the child was returned after uh the payment had been made uh so there was some cause for optimism um on the limbers part that you know they were paying a huge amount of money obviously charlie would come back um it was also traditional for the police to let the family make the decisions about how they wanted to handle the negotiations, uh, <clears throat> which is one of the reasons Lindbergh took such charge of the case. Well, that makes sense. I mean, and that that was portrayed very clearly in the book. And I, I'm always hesitating. So, like I said, I don't want to give away too much. It's so it, the the book is so great. But Betty is a great character, Betty Gow, the the nanny, and and she is portrayed um, as very. Um, confident and but yet she you know she came she came here hoping for certain things that, that from Scotland and and it wasn't exactly what she thought it was going to be I guess you could say <laughs> yeah and yeah. they put her through the ringer the old me- media didn't they I you know I was people often ask what's the most fascinating thing you discovered in the book um and when I was first looking at Betty Gow I thought well you know she is a was she an important part of this story? But the media coverage of her was huge. Um, the assumption was that a woman had to be working with the kidnappers because otherwise Charlie would have fussed, he would have woken up, he would have cried. Um, so as, some, as the woman other than Anne who had the most access to him, she was a suspect. Um, she was also very young and very attractive working for, you know, the most famous man in the country. Uh, she had a boyfriend with a slightly sketchy, uh, employment history. So it all kind of, I see how it came together in a very compelling newspaper story and why people ran with it. Uh, but poor Betty, she was forever dubbed. Uh, you know, she who left unlocked the shutters through which the kidnappers entered the baby's room and people did not get that image out of their minds. Yeah. And and you really have to read the book for yourself to to, to draw your own conclusions. I, I did draw some conclusions. I certainly had questions. I don't know if it's a, a, okay to ask you. And if we don't, if you don't want to talk about it, we don't have to. But just from a, from a, I'm a grandmother now and also a mother. And there are a couple of things I was like, wait a minute. Like, it's funny how things change and and what you're allowed to do with a baby or what you're suggested to do with a baby. Um, I thought that the um, the clips that they put on his his thumbs before he went to bed. What the heck? What the heck is that? The thumb guard. Yes. And they were metal. Like, how in the world could this be health? Uh, you know, safe for a kid baby. 
I, I know. Um, the thumb guards were apparently a standard piece of gear that you would clip to a baby's thumb um, to stop it from teething, from sucking its thumb. Um, and I, I was able to see the original thumb guard at the New Jersey State Police Museum. And I, I had sort of imagined it like a champagne cork, like that kind of wire. It's so much heavier Oof. and um, more brutal wow. than that. Um, and Betty hated them, and I see exactly why she hated them. Um, but yes, Colonel Lindbergh was not going to have his son sucking his thumb and ruining his mouth. Yikes. So. Yikes. Crazy. And then the whole idea of pinning the blanket to the crib? I, yes, they pinned the blankets to the crib, um, a fact which became somewhat significant in the investigation. I wasn't sure if that was to make sure that the baby stayed covered or whether, I mean, you remember we, we, we were supposed to put our children or we did put our children in sleep sacks. We didn't cover them up with a lot of blankets because of crib death. I'm not sure whether it worked on the same principle, but yes, it feels like a very constrained way for the child to sleep. Right, right. And so and so with, sometimes with true crime, and, and you really, you don't cover this in the book specifically, but it was something that I thought of. Is it okay if I bring it up? Okay, so for someone to to crawl into a window and and take little Charlie, he'd have to know to unpin the the blanket, right? Well, he did not unpin. Oh, he didn't. Okay. And that is why, from the very beginning, the police suspected that Charlie had been killed Uh. because they thought you would have to take the child by the head and pull him very roughly Oof. out. Yes. Uh, so they had doubts from the very beginning that Charlie uh, was still alive. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, so as you can as you can hear, there are just there are so many aspects to the story, and and it really is fascinating, but horrifying at the same time. And when I started to read the book, I was like, oh, I don't know. Like I said, I ha- I have two new grandsons. They're a year apart. They're babies, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can read this. And yet, you you wrote it in such a way that it wasn't. It, it was okay to read. It was it was okay. How did you do that? How did you write such a horrific, you know, piece of history so well? Well, uh, you know, I'm a mom myself, and my son is now 17 and six foot three. But at a certain <laughs> point, he too was a stocky little blonde toddler. Um, so, in some ways, it was nice to revisit that time with him but it was it was it was very vulnerable making um because of course betty um has to identify charlie um Mm. after they find him and i thought oh god i don't know if i can write this scene (laughs) um and um when i tried to focus on um one of the Lindbergh children who's still living um has said you know this was a real family this was a real child who was lost by people who loved him and i always kept that 
in the forefront of my mind, you know, in some, you know, many great books have been written about this case. In some of them, Charlie is treated as sort of the MacGuffin. Hmm. You know, he's an object who gets the story going. And I really, I read Anne's diaries. Um, I later had a chance to read Betty's diaries about Charlie. And I really wanted him to emerge as his own little person um, so that, you know, you could remember him. He absolutely did. You did it. You did a fabulous job. So let me ask you, you know, our, our, our uh, listeners and um, our aspiring authors, and some of them are authors, they're trying to get their, their feet, you know, going again in terms of book promotion, because I talk a lot about book marketing. And I was wondering if you had any advice for the aspiring author who's, who's on the book promotion uh, side? Is there anything that you've done to promote your books that's been particular, especially in the early years? In the early years, I wrote Young Adult. um, And that was a whole different deal because you have very specific gatekeepers in terms of libraries and schools. um, And publishing houses will build up their relationships um, with those gatekeepers um, at conferences. And so, so there's a click. There's a click, but it's also <laughs> your marketing lanes are very clear. Yep. Um, my first editor was uh, Dick Jackson, uh, who worked with Judy Bloom, and he would work, he would walk into AOA and, you know, the, the waters would part. Um, so with mystery, you know, you have hardcore mystery fans and uh, bookstores that you can rely on. You have a lot of mystery blogs who will help you get the words out. You know, you have podcasts. Um, So, but it's difficult because you also have a great deal. There's a wonderful range in historical and in mystery of you know, you have your top tier, you know, Louise Penny and, you know, Sujava Massey. Um, and then you have sort of more mid-list people like me. And then you have a lot of people who publish with independent publishers um, or self-publish. And it's difficult to be heard. It's a crowded market. And I think one thing that I noticed in, in the Jane Prescott series I had real historical events, but I didn't have any real people. It wasn't like the Lindbergh kidnapping. Um, When you put a nonfiction hook in your historical book, people find you. Um, People are much more likely to reach out to me and say, hey, I'm interested in true crime or Lindbergh or kidnapping or the rise of fascism or what have you Um, with my next book, The Wharton Plot, you know, many Wharton fans out there. And, you know, you can go to a charter bookstore in Newport. Um, So I think finding a subject that people are already interested in and so that they can find you um, does make your life a lot easier on the uh, promotion front. I love that advice because, you know, we're knee deep in all the things that you can do on social media to 
promote your book and, you know, selling it for a dollar, you know, on 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 different sites that will do that for you. And they'll send it out to 50,000 people and influencers and, and Instagram and book talk. And it's like, okay, I, I try to bring them back like to, like you said, the grassroots, you know, find people who are interested in what you're writing, find people who you wrote, who did you write the book for, you know, start there, and find out where where they are, because the chances of you being seen, you know, in a book talk, you know, little video, right? Right. I mean, and and I guess it grows too. Right. I mean, if you Google Lindbergh, you you don't have to Google Mariah Fredericks because very few people are interested in Googling Mariah Fredericks. Um, I am. More, <laughs> you know, far more people Google Lindbergh kidnapping, and now Lindbergh nanny comes up. Um, yes. Uh, so, and the other thing I think, I mean, I love book bloggers. I, you know, God bless them. And but you also have to think about. Am I making the money or is the distributor making the money? Yes. You know, that's one question I have with sort of online, like <clears throat> that online bookseller um, that, you know, we all love, but they're making money. Are the writers making money? Right. Uh, and also, I think only a partic- particular kinds of books are appealing um, to people who sort of buy in bulk and on mass and are you writing that kind of a book? Yes, you're right. And, and and they're getting all the attention. They're getting all the algorithm help. They're getting all the, right, right. agreed, agreed. Uh, so good. That, that's very, that's very good advice. Um, one of the things that you mentioned uh, about, you know, on your site, you have that people can write a comment or if they had a question about the book. But if you find mistakes, be kind, because we're trying our best. <laughs> You know, that that really resonated with me because a lot of authors, it's like, you know, when you get your work out there, first of all, they're scared to death to put their work out there to begin with because it's so, you put you in a vulnerable position. And then when you do, you get all this criticism. So as, as an author who has had success over many years, what, do you have advice on that count for ha- handling the criticism? You know, when I first started out, I read, this was... I think it might have been before Goodreads, but I read everything. Um, and, you know, kids, kids are, when they love you, they love you. When yeah. they don't like you, they, they, you know, they're teenagers. They're brutal. They're brutal. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but you can forgive because they're, you know. Um, I have to say my experience has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, you know, I try and focus on people who love Jane Prescott, even though, you know, there aren't that many of them, but the ones who do really do, um, (laughs) usually a really great exchange. Um, there are, I've had a, a few really brutal reviews and that's more difficult just in the sense of the knowledge that there are people out there who enjoy ripping people apart. <laughs> That's the sort of an, a, a lousy thing to lend into your consciousness. Um, but at this point, I think you just have to say, I know I wrote a good book. I wrote the book I wanted to write. It's 
difficult if you feel that those reviews are a sign that you're not gaining traction with readers. That's the painful part. Um, and but you know that is, your control over that is limited to some degree. Um, yeah. You can either take the advice that they're offering. Um, I forget one book I wrote. People really, really hated. Uh, <laughs> I wrote, I wrote a book, uh, Fatal Distraction. It was a book about celebrity obsession. And it was marketed what was called at that time a chick flick. A chick, 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 chick no. lit. Chick lit. Chick lit. Um, see, it was traumatizing. <laughs> um, and, and the reviews were pretty brutal. And I realized, oh, I didn't write a chiclet novel. I like chiclet. I love Bridget Jones as much as anybody, but that's not what I wrote. And it was marketed. Mm. I understand why they marketed it that way, but I didn't find the right readers. Yes. So that, that way, the negative feedback was helpful. Yeah, interesting. Uh, but it can it can be really soul-crushing, and, and I, like, I like your advice. Um, you know, I, I tend to do the same thing, just kind of put it in a, I had one, when I wrote my first book for new moms, it was a nonfiction book for new moms. And I was writing honestly about it, which at the time was new. And a lot of people didn't like that I was writing honestly about it. It was like, wait a minute, this is the best thing in the world. Why are you disparaging motherhood? I actually had somebody send me a letter because I wrote an article in the paper, which is another way to promote your book. I wrote an article in the paper just describing motherhood in the 21st century, um, not about the book specifically, but I had somebody write me a letter saying, here's, here's the names of some physicians you need to talk to. You're clearly depressed and unstable. <laughs> oh, my God. That's pretty good, yeah. right? <laughs> there are very few hot button issues like motherhood, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 I, I once had one where somebody said, it is clear from the shallowness of this book that nothing of significance or pain has ever happened to this novelist. She knows nothing about life. I think that was the month my mother had died. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I hear you. I but motherhood, yeah, people will come and. It doesn't matter if you go on the more lenient side, if you go on the, it's fabulous, it's a joy, it's like, no, it's really a struggle sometimes. They'll come for you. Yep, absolutely. And, and when I feel really low, I, I have this book and it's called, um, oh shoot, it was Pushcart, uh, publishers put it out, and I'm forgetting the name of it. Oh, something about really harsh criticisms. I forget exactly what it was called, but it was all famous authors who had gotten bad reviews from editors and yes. right and one was <laughs> one was uh oh pearl buck hello who by the way is like right up the street from where i live in pennsylvania her her home really? it, oh, oh and it's amazing it's an amazing place bucks county and her home itself is pretty much exactly as it was when she died because her kids did not take over the property so it's become a museum as it was when she lived there to go it's amazing it's amazing anyway but uh, one editor wrote to her no one's going to read a book about china about <laughs> about yeah the good earth uh hello yeah so that you have to keep that in mind you know they don't know everything right right 
Another thing that I find helpful is go look up the Goodreads and Amazon reviews of writers that you love, and you will see they have they have some of them have very poor ratings. I mean, books that you know are complete classics. I mean, War and Peace might be mm. like at a three point seven. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. yeah, could you just try a little harder? Yeah, exactly. Awfully long. Oh War and my. Um, Crazy, crazy. Okay. So let me ask you, um, I read in your, uh, when I did some research about you, and I'm not, I'm not stalking you, I swear, but I read that you were um, a book of the month editor. Do I have that right? I was a head copywriter. And I actually did do the editing that I did was I found, um, I did book reports for them on historical fiction. And I was able to bring back um, Rosemary Holly Jarman's um, novels on the Wars of the Roses. We reprinted those. Ooh. So that was, I got a letter from her. Um, how so that thrilling. Total pleasure. Yeah. Neat. Well, wh- and how long did you do that? What, and how did that experience help you as an author? Oh, so helpful. Um, I, gosh, I was there for about six years and you know when i first started writing i thought i am going to remain pure i am going to remain ignorant of the publishing industry and just you know follow my art (laughs) Um, you know with the result that i knew no one in the publishing industry and i didn't have a good sense of the market um with book of the month club you're reading 30 books every three weeks or you know me and a team and you see what are the big books across a broad spectrum. Um, so it was a fantastic education. And um, they used to have the main selection author would come to lunch. So I met incredible people. I met um, Robert Harris and uh, John Updike and Harold Bloom. And, wow. Um, and I also met the people they worked with because their editors and their agents would come. Um, So that was an incredibly uh, valuable and important experience. Neat. And I'd like to, that's such a great point and and a piece of advice as well, that it it really is important to understand the publishing industry. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, conferences, I think, are a terrific way to, particularly in the mystery world. And Historical Novel Society does a great conference, too, just to meet people and become part of the conversation and, um, you know, connect in. It's, It's a hard job to do in isolation. Absolutely. Yep, it absolutely is. So before we got on the air, you mentioned that, um, I asked you how much time you had, and you said that uh, you were done your writing for the day, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind describing your writing process for the audience. Ah, um, I write every day, um, and and that's that's really just to banish um, writing jimmers. Like, if you know you have to do three pages a day, um, then you just have to fill those pages they don't have to be great that's what rewrites are for um right now i'm just starting a new project so i'm doing sort of what i think of as the mud stage which is sort of (laughs) gathering the material and i can shape it later um and then the rest of the day will 
probably be spent partly um, promoting the next book, Wharton Plot. Um, and then, you know, and also the Lindbergh Nami, the paperback comes out in early January. Wow. Uh, and then, you know, an hour, hour and a half goes to sort of free form research. Like, let me follow this little weird alleyway. And, you know, did they have salt and peanuts in 1920? <laughs> uh, you know, where could you get a drink? Um, so that, that's, yeah, that's big. And then later in the process, I will do two fresh pages and two rewritten pages. Because I, I I find the rewriting a much, it's a pleasure, but it takes a long time. There you actually have to commit to your choices. You have to, all those sort of clunky, messy transitions. You're like, okay, <laughs> I got to clean this up. This now has to work. Um, so Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. So tell us about the latest book, because I think by the time this airs, it'll probably be available for pre-sale. The Wharton Plot, it's coming out in January 2024. So tell us about that book. I can't wait to read it. Uh, the Wharton Plot is uh, another true crime. Uh, we like the idea of going back to a true crime, but this is a murder that no one has heard of. Uh, the shooting of David Graham Phillips, who, believe it or not, was considered the greatest American writer of his day, which was 1911. He was shot outside the Princeton Club in Gramercy Park, and the, Edith Wharton became involved when my editor said, I said, you know, this is a great murder. There's, some, there's something so emblematic about the end of the Gilded Age about it and she said that's great um women tend to read historical mysteries i'd really love to get a woman into this story and i'm like oh sure no problem gilded <laughs> so, age women with mobility new york and i was like well, what was edith wharton doing at that time and Wharton was having a midlife crisis in New York City. <laughs> wow. A few months of this murder, um, she was stuck at the Belmont Hotel and she wanted to leave her husband. She wanted to leave her publisher and she wanted to leave America. And the interesting thing about where she and David Graham Phillips intersect, um, aside from her actually being the greatest American novelist of the time, is that they both wrote about the transactional nature of marriage. And what did that mean for women? And where was the room for authentic emotion? And those were the issues she was grappling with at the time. So I thought it'd be really interesting to get the two of them in conversation. So in the novel, they meet very briefly at the Belmont Hotel. They detest each other. <laughs> Then two days later, she hears he's been shot. And she thinks, I don't actually want to be dealing with all this mess in my life. I'm going to go in search of, you know, I'm going to find out what this murder was. Why was a writer shot in New York City? So Wow. Oh, I can't wait to read it. And you're right about, I mean, The Age of Innocence, one of my favorite books ever. And gosh, that was just filled with you know, marriage being transactional and then, you know, the the wanting of the true love and not getting it. And wow. Right. Right. 
And was that written? I wonder if that was written from her personal experience. I'm sure it was. Oh, yes. I mean, she was in 1911. She's still coming off the big hit of the House of Mirth, which covers similar uh, themes. But her career has been a little bit in decline. And they're like, would you write another great hot novel about rich people in New York getting married? <laughs> and she's like, man, I want to write Ethan from. Um, and as I say, Phillips dealt with very similar, um, issues, but very judgmentally, you know, Uh, women were shallow, women just wanted wealth, women, um, hmm. you know, rode around in automobiles and, you know, engaged in culture. So there's a, a very clear clash there. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much. Thanks for, for sharing that. And and just one last question for you, if you don't mind, Mariah. So uh, you wrote a book about tarot cards? <laughs> I did. I read tarot cards, or I used to read tarot cards. Ooh. Every once in a while, I'll still get them out. I don't know how brilliant a book it is. Um, and I, I think there are better tarot guides out there but again it was during the chick lit uh era and i wrote the smart girl's guide to tarot Ooh! and i have to say i love tarot reading i I suspect a lot of writers do because basically what tarot cards do is tell you a story um here's where you are now here's the how you got here and depending on your choices and various outside influences here's how you could end up um so i don't know and i've had very readings that turned out in a very scary way really yeah yeah since i became a mom i actually stopped (laughs) um so uh, but yeah yeah a few of them have come true it's still very popular, and I, I don't know why women, I mean, I guess men do too, but I know a lot of women really find it fun. Um, I don't know what it is about that, like maybe getting an insight into your future. I don't know why we, you know, we love that so much. Michelle Pfeiffer once said, I think it was Michelle Pfeiffer, she said, when, you, when you're at a stage in your life where you don't feel you have complete control and you're not sure what's going to happen next, it feels very reassuring to have it laid out before you. Um, and I think mean, it was sort of a psychological guardrail in some ways. It, 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 calm, it used to calm me down when I used to do them quite regularly. Nice. Like, oh, okay. that'll happen? That's not so bad. Or that's great. But um, not since you became a mom. No. No, because I don't, you know, they don't always turn out well, the readings, and there are certain things that I do not want to see in the future. Now, I mean, now he's 17, so. Yeah. Um, but, um, and, you know, you have to believe them, and, you know, it's all very silly, but, you know. Those, Neat. Those images, yeah. I'm going to check it out. I am going to check out that book. Um, oh. But I'm not a stalker, I swear. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for being with us. Did you want to, um, you said you were working on something, and I understand this is a, a question that every author hates about their next project, but is there anything that you want to uh, share about that, divulge? Um, it is another true crime, and it's uh, new, another New York writer. That's okay. I can say it. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Mariah Fredericks, you can find her at MariahFrederiksBooks.com. I'll have that information in the show notes. Check out her book, The Lindbergh Nanny, and also her latest coming out in January um, 2024, The Wharton Plot. Thank you so much, Mariah, for being with us. Oh, thank you. It was a huge pleasure. It was a great conversation. So much fun. Thank you. And you are listening to Get Your Book Seen and Sold. You have been listening to Get Your Book Seen and Sold with Claudine Wolk. Thanks for listening. And remember to share and subscribe to my Substack, Get Your Book Seen and Sold, at claudinewolk.substack.com. With paid subscriptions, some less than $5 a month, you will have access to all of my resource-filled posts and podcasts, plus a fill-in-the-blank book marketing plan that you can download. At the highest subscription level, you will also get a 30-minute consult with me. When you are ready to make some decisions about your book, subscribe today and let's come up with a plan.